This is God's word, amen? Thank you, Dylan. So, I grew up in Oklahoma, and uh, the title of this uh, sermon may seem a bit strange, and that's okay. I'll do my best to explain. Uh, Hopefully, the fellow Okie who just read that text will know kind of where I'm going with this, uh, because... Um, so in, in, I grew up in Oklahoma, a very, a very small town right on the border of Texas, uh, grew, I could probably, uh, drive to the, uh, the Red River in maybe five minutes, but about an hour north and a little bit west of us is this town called Elmore City. Elmore City was a town established in 1898, uh, and for 82 years, 82 years, there was a town-wide decree that prohibited a lot of things on the basis of religious grounds, but... Primarily, and what it's famous for is it prohibited dancing. The town was established by a group of strict Pentecostals who desired a town free from worldly vices. And in 1979, there was a movement led by two high school upperclassmen who simply wanted to dance. All they wanted to do was just have a dance. They wanted a prom for their high school graduating class. So they petitioned the city council to overturn the statue that had been held for 82 years, the entirety of the town's existence, and allowed them to have a prom. The resolution passed three to two, and Elmore City High had his first prom ever in 1980. I actually played football often against, uh, against Elmore City for the years that I played football in high school, and they gave me, and just the fact of what the town went through then and what became in pop culture, as a reference to it, gave us a lot of ammunition when we were on the line, kind of trash-talking the other team. Because if you haven't put it together by now, the story was the inspiration for four years later, the 1984 film Footloose with Kevin Bacon and John Lithgow. The main antagonists of this film uh, and in reality are self-proclaimed Christians who, uh, if we look objectively at it, may even have really, really good intentions for their actions. So they put a ban on these things that they thought were so inherently sinful. And so, I mean, you can Im- imagine the trash talk on the line between us and the Elmore City line that was, you know, I'm coming for you, twinkle toes, get ready, Kevin Bacon, I'm going to knock you down or not, like, stuff like that. It was, it was fun, it, was, it gave us a lot of ammunition in our trash talk when we went up against these guys. There's a scene in this film, uh, which is 100% Hollywood fabrication, it didn't actually happen by all accounts, but still entertaining nonetheless, so I'll bring it up, where Kevin Bacon's protagonist, this guy who moved in from Chicago, who was this dancing, all he wanted to do was dance, and when he was depressed, he went to a warehouse and kind of did his own thing with the, the stuff there by dancing. Dancing was how he kind of expressed himself. Uh, and so he became this unwilling, you know, leader of this movement to try and get the city council to overturn this statute. And so there's a scene in the film, kind of the crux of the whole movie, uh, when he stands up and he gets in front of the city council. He starts talking about what, all the good that it would do for these, these kids and begins quoting the Bible. And in the film, the pastor who's been the antagonist from all this, John Lithgow's character, he, he uh, is sitting on the, the city council. He's a member of it. That, that wasn't true. This person didn't actually exist. But for the sake of entertainment, they put him up there as listening to it. So Kevin Bacon starts, not a believer, not a Christian, doesn't really go to church, doesn't think much of church, but begins to quote these scriptures to him about the goodness, about about all these references to dancing, how David danced before the Lord. And he actually quotes our passage this morning. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance in verse three there. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse four there. 
It begins to quote our passage. It makes its way into his discord. He, now he said, David said it. They didn't do a lot of research for this. They just kind of went with it. And so um, he misquoted it and he takes almost all of them out of context, but that's okay. Throughout the film, throughout this film, the town's preacher is shown to be this caring, cruel, but extreme uh, person who wields uh, his pulpit like a hammer to keep uh, the sin of the townspeople in check. And my question today um, and, and that's about as far as it goes. I, th- I think this title, uh, kind of merging with our sermon text this, this morning, it, the title doesn't have a ton to do with what we're going to talk about, but um, it, it does. When, I, I thought that, but then when I started studying this text, when I started studying, preparing for this message, I think it actually does kind of apply. Because if you think about it, why, is, why in this narrative, why in this narrative are the religious followers, right, the, the Christians of the town, why are they painted, and I believe rightly so, as in opposition to good? Why are they the antagonists? Why are Christians in this passage the antagonists? Now, some would argue, oh, it's made by a secular culture. I actually don't think that's the case. I think they're right to make them the evil ones in this story. It's because their awe was misplaced. They, their awe was shifted to a wrong degree. It it looked at the wrong thing that inspired awe in them. They were awestruck by the sinfulness of man and what he could do and how wicked and the lengths in which he could go to do what is wicked in the eyes of God. Their awe was there. And they're not wrong. We can do that and we do do that as often as we can. But that is the whole reason why they did what, what they did. It's not nuanced. That's it. In a nutshell, dancing is wicked because it promotes this. And that's why they made that statue. When they should have gotten their eyes off of the filth of the earth and fixed on the glory of heaven and the king who dwells there. See, their awe was misplaced. And that's what Solomon this morning wants to show us. He's trying to communicate a similar message to us that we should have our awe on the glory of God rather than our own sinfulness and what we can do with the good things God has given us. That's what Coleth wants to point out to us this morning. That's what the preacher is trying to say. Awe should fill our eyes when we get them above the sun to the one who brings the seasons like the ebb and flow of a tide. So as we look intentionally at our text this morning, we're going to see three things and it's going to serve as our outline this morning. First, we will discuss the seasons, the seasons. And second, we will discuss the helmsman, right? The helmsman. And then thirdly, lastly, we will see the task, the task that is given to us. Okay, first, let's look here at our text, right? The seasons, look with me. Verse one um, tells us and communicates to us that for everything, there is a season. There is a time and a place for everything under heaven. Now, this is sort of his, his thesis for the next verse. Everything that's going to follow this is going to show, uh, to serve to reinforce this idea. that There is a time for everything in this text. Namely, there's a time for everything. Birth, death, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing, love, hate, war, peace, all of it. There's a proper time for all of it. There's a time when all of this is the proper response to what is going on around us. Verses two through eight, the preacher presents us with powerful poetry that rivals some of history's greatest poets. The poem is is intrinsically and profoundly human, right? If you read it, you think of moments in your life where that time was upon you then, right? where the time it's talking about to, 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 to break down, the time to build, the time to weep and mourn and, and then to, to dance and rejoice, you can, you can know in your life when those moments were upon you. 
It's intrinsically human and really puts flesh on the skeleton that the preacher is trying to build this body into. Up to this point, he's only spoken of life kind of in a bare minimum. He's talking about birth, he's talking about desire and, and death and work, but now he, he sort of puts a, a whole robust picture of a person in your head, a, a, a robust picture of life. He gives us, he really puts meat to the skeleton and gives us a taste for the flavors that are going into this dish that we call the human life and the existence as we pilgrimage here on this rock. In these verses, he is using a literary device called a merism, a merism. It's a figure of speech in which two polarities, right, two polar opposite definitions, two polar opposite terms actually make up a whole, right? So each one of these are that merism. He's showing birth and death. In, in between those is every day a human lives, right? Weeping and laughter. In between those, there is law. He is showing you that this poem makes up the entirety of the human existence. That's what he's trying to point out to you. He is summing up in each of these statements the whole of the Christian and worldly life and emotion. He is showing you this is what humans have waiting for them. We're going to experience all this. Each of these statements could rightly contain a sermon in and of themselves, right? Each of these statements could, could, could be broken down and pulled apart, much like Kevin Bacon did, right? He's just going to pull this one because it talks about dancing, and he just wants to dance, right? He... I can pull this out of sermon. I would, honestly, I would love to spend the whole sermon yelling at you about how you need to laugh more, right? I would love to spend the whole sermon yelling at you about how you need to dance more or how you need to create things and be creative or tear down things or rage with war and hate the proper things and love the proper things. A little bit of that's coming later, so spoiler alert. But that is not what the preacher is intending. I think it would be unwise and ill-informed to do that. The preacher's not doing that. What he's doing is showing you in this poem the whole of the human life and emotion. He says dance, build, love, mourn, tear down, hate. He is using this poem not to present us with individual points, but to communicate one unified holistic message. What is this message? All these, these things, all of these have the same theme. What is it? He's trying to show us something. What is he saying? We are not in control. That's what he's saying. We're not in control. All of this, if you read it closely, we have no control over any of this. If you read the Greek Septuagint, which is not, is not God's inspired word, but these men who were faithful unto God, who wanted to translate this work and the, the ideas that, that God is communicating in the Old Testament to the Greek language, this is before the time of Christ, they, they put this into the Greek common the Koine Greek language of the day so that all people could know the goodness of God in the Old Testament. God led them to do this. So they translated this into the Greek. It's called the Septuagint, right? It's the Old Testament, but in Koine Greek. This word, time, so in the Greek language, there are two words for time. There's chronos, which chronos, if you know anything about Greek mythology, he was the titan, father of the Olympians. He was a titan, but his, he had influence over time. He could control time as he saw fit. Kronos, Kronos, that was the, the word for time. And th that word was, it was at one given moment in time, one specific moment in time. That's what it, it was communicated to. By and large, that's what it meant. Then there was an another word for it called Kairos, Kairos. And this didn't mean just any old time, any old specific time. This is talking about an appointed time. This is talking about God appointing 
in the span of all of human history, this moment, this is an influential moment, right? That's what kairos meant. Every single time, every single time that time is used in this text, it's kairos in the Septuagint. It is kairos. Communicating to us that this time, that the, the time to be born, the time to die, the time to kill and the time to heal, time to create and to tear down, to weep and to laugh, all of these are appointed times. It's not us just having to stumble along and, and decide that it's now is the time to weep, right? It's not us trudging through this pilgrimage saying, okay, now I should make war. Now it's time to hate, right? I'm going to make this choice myself. No, this is God ordaining and appointing these seasons. We are not in control of, of the time that we find ourselves in any more than we are in control of what season we find ourselves in today. Like we're, it's summer, that's an objective fact that we have no choice in, right? It is really, really hot and humid in the armpit of America, East Texas, right? And what a beautiful armpit it may be, right? It is hot, and we have no control over what season we're in. Do we? We have no control. What we do have control in is how we respond appropriately to that season. And it's the same with all of these times Coleth is, is, is trying to communicate to us that this time that we find ourselves in is appointed, kairos. It is appointed by God. It is an appointed time that we should exist here. And there is a right way and an appropriate way to respond to the season that you're in right now. But the message he's trying to communicate is we are not in control of this. In all of this, we do have a responsibility to respond to this time appropriately. We absolutely do. There is a right and a wrong way to react to every single time that God has us in. But we have no control over the times themselves. We have no say in whether the ebb and the flow of time brings us the plowing and the tilling or the harvest. We don't get to choose that. God does. God is in control of whether it's springtime and we're planting seed or whether it's autumn and we're harvesting, right? We have no control over that. We have no idea when we will be thrust into a time of war or a time of peace. We have no control over it. We are out of, it is out of our hands. Why? Because someone else is, is steering the ship. Someone else is navigating the waters of time. That brings us to our point number two, the helmsman. The helmsman. Didymus the Blind was a fourth century theologian. He was a student of origin in the, the, the fourth century. And he compares us as humans, specifically as the church, to passengers on a ship, right? He says that, uh, that we know we're on this ship. We're tr- trudging and, and, and uh, traversing through the waters. We're navigating through these, these harsh waves. And the only way that we know that there is a helmsman is because we have not run aground yet. He says that the helmsman is only known to us by his work and by his providence, i.e. his leading and navigating and directing the course of the ship. We can't see him. If we're passengers on the ship, we can't see the captain, but we know he's there because we're going somewhere and we're not going where we're not supposed to go, right? He's directing us. He's leading us. So who is the helmsman that is at the, the, the helm of our ship? Let's look now at the preacher's explanation of this this poem. Verses 9 and 10. He tells us, he reminds us once again of all that he has seen. He asks the question, like he often does, what what gain has the worker from his toil? And then he he tells us that 
He reminds us of all that he's done. He has seen all he has done. He has tasted all of the the good treasures that this world has to offer. He's seen them all. He's tasted them all. There's nothing new under the sun that he is unaware of. He has seen nations rise and fall. He has seen new life be given to infants, and he has seen death come to all. He has seen war and peace. And what does he have to say about all of this? What's his conclusion? Vanity, right? Everything's meaningless. Nope. No, not vanity. Beauty. Beauty is what he says. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God has made beautiful all things in time. All that he spoke of in verses 2 through 8 was made beautiful by God. These are all good things. War, peace, love, hate, silence, speaking up. All of these are good things that God has given us to be busy with. Laughter, tears, war, peace, building, creating something, tearing that thing down. All of this has been given to us as a gift from God and a joy to to put our hands to. That means that none of these things listed here, and listen to me when I say this, none of these things are intrinsically evil. None of them. God cannot do evil. God cannot come in contact with sin or corruption. He is utterly holy and set apart from all wickedness. And what does it say? That God has made all things beautiful in time. These things, all of these things, even the ones that make us cringe, right? Like hate and war, killing. These are the things that God has given man. And these are good things from him. Do we always enact these things perfectly? Absolutely not. Do we always understand and are able to communicate the reasons why this is going on? No. Are we God? No, we are not. God is good and he has given us these things to be busy with. All of them have their own place in time. God has sovereignly ordained all of them to come to pass. How can God do this, right? How can God do this? He himself stands outside of time. God, before everything was, before the heavens, before the earth, before the expanse, before everything that we see is beautiful before us, God was, right? God is, and even after everything has gone away, God will be. That is who God is. He is the uncreated, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God. Time itself, listen to me here, time itself is a created entity, much like trees or the ground or rocks, or the sea, or the wind. Time itself was created by God. It's a created thing. And just like all of those things, what we're meant to do with the time is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Nothing in time escapes him because time itself flows from him. He is the author of all time and space. God is timeless and yet perfect in his timing. He uses all of time to fulfill his great purposes for his great glory. He uses time like an artisan or a, or a, a blacksmith uses a hammer. He uses it to forge something beautiful and useful for his glory and his own purposes. The preacher reaffirms this in verses 14 and 15. What God, endure, what God does endures forever. Nothing can be taken away or added to what he has done. Nothing will come to pass that, not, that has not already been. What is happening now has already been. What will happen in the future, God has already made it so. 
God is the grand orchestra master of all of time. Time is a symphony. It's a movement of music that God is conducting and leading and playing the instruments and putting, putting people in the seats behind him to observe. He is doing all of it. And he does this. Look at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse uh, 14. God has done it so that people fear before him so that they would be struck with awe, not at the sinfulness of man, but at how absolutely giant our God is. That's what we should be struck with fear about. This fear, this reverence, this awe, it shouldn't be on, on whether or not we should allow dancing because, because it can lead to inappropriateness between young people, right? That's not where our awe should be. Our awe should be on God who controls everything, who is orchestrating everything behind the scenes so that he could gain glory. That's where our awe should be. God does all of this because of his glory. We see God's timelessness most. Sorry. We see God's perfect timing and his timelessness most in the life of Christ. It says in Galatians 4.4 that when Christ had come, when Christ had come at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God worked all of time leading up to the time of Christ perfectly to prepare the world for the coming of the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He worked all things perfectly in that moment. If you study history, secular history even, and you study and, and see the, the political workings and the contributions of the Roman Empire and see how it's kind of leading up to the, the time of Christ, and then, and then you take a break and say, wow, that's a really interesting. You take a break from, from that and you study the Greek heritage that's leading up to this, the intellectual and philosophical contributions that the, Greek, the Greeks had on culture leading up to the time of Christ. And then take a step back away from that and you see the Jewish moral and religious influences on the world. You will be absolutely baffled by the way that God was leading all of this to this time and this moment the proper time when he sent his son into the world. All of this was coming to the crux, to the, 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 the absolute pinnacle of all of human time in the gospel, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He led all of it to there. Once we start to see the life of Christ played out even, we see Jesus himself being God and being creator, the one whom through all things were created, through him all things were he has the same understanding that he had before. <laughs> before time began, when Jesus existed, he understood time as being you know, kind of like a ball that he just gets to play with and do whatever he wants. And that's kind of the way he sees it when he's here on earth. Jesus created time, and yet he was thrust into the very midst of it. In, in eternity past, Jesus, the Son, with the Father, was party to playing with time much as a young child just plays with a toy. He can do whatever he wants with it. And yet, like, if he was this, if he was playing with this, this ball of yarn and there was a string and he started stringing it out, he, who is creator over it, decided to immerse himself and he became, immerse himself in human flesh and as a speck on a ball of yarn, jumped into the time that he now creates and controls and commands. Jesus constantly knew exactly what the situation called for. 
Jesus knew exactly what he must do moment to moment, whether that would be to withdraw and go be with God, whether that be to cross the sea and seek and, and, and call and cast out demons from this one individual so that people in his town might know who, who God is in human flesh, who Jesus really is, who the Christ is, whether it was to do that, whether it was to stop everything and just teach the people that was in front of him, whether it was to go and to be beaten and arrested and stand before the synagogue and say, I am I am God. Whether it was to go and and, and be taken before Pilate and sit silent so that he could receive the punishment that we were due. And then he took that punishment. Jesus knew exactly what to do with every single moment. We can see that God makes everything beautiful in its time and the ways in which Jesus handles this time beautifully. And beautifully postured at the proper time is God wrapped in flesh and that flesh being torn and beaten and pierced and bruised and nailed to a cross. The cross is the moment, the place where all of time and space are converging on Jesus. It is the epicenter for all of God's judgment and wrath as well as his grace and mercy. All of the hope that we could ever have hinges on what Jesus did in his dying and in his rising. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. The marvel of heaven and earth, of time and eternity, is the atoning death of Jesus Christ. This is the mystery that brings more glory to God than all of creation. Everything that we can observe out here, it does bring glory to God. But way more so is the moment in which Christ atoned for the sins of his people. That is what brings the most glory to God. And that is where our ultimate hope and awe should fixate, is that. It's Christ. It's the gospel. It's the truth that Christ died and became my sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. These are the things that bring God the most glory. One question I have for for you is, is the gospel this beautiful? Is it this marvelous? Is it this marvelous thing that happened at the proper time and we can see all, everything converging on it? Or does it aggravate your conscience? to the point where you despise it. In other words, will you trust the gospel or will you reject it? So, not only has God made everything beautiful in its time, thereby creating everything as objectively good and and having a proper time, but he has also placed a subjective searching in man. That might be a strange thing to say. Look at the end of verse 11 for me. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has placed eternity into the hearts of man. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's talk. Okay. It is not some idea of universalistic, cosmic, we are all God type mentality. Like we're all, we're all the universe and the universe is God. That's not what he's talking about, right? He's not talking about within you is, is a perfectly capable eternity. All you need to, to live life and be good is within you. It's inside of you. Trust, trust whatever's inside of you. That's not what he's saying. He's, he said already that everything that's inside of you despises God. Everything that's inside of you wants all of these pleasures of the world, and it's all vanity. So what does this mean? God, in his infinite existence, has given life to man, to beast, to trees, to all of creation. But he has only placed eternity in the heart of man. He has given man the gift and the burden of constantly trying to find something that is just out of their reach. We are burdened as mankind. 
with trying to find something, fulfillment, in something that is greater than ourselves, that is just outside of our reach, that we can't quite get to, but we want to understand. If you study science, I mean, that's all science is, is trying to make sense apart from God of all that's out there, right? We're always searching and looking outside of time that we live in. Whether it is to relish in the past and say, man, I just wish I could go back, right? I wish I could go back to that time. Or like I've heard people, and I've said this before because I was an immature college student, I think I was born in the wrong time, right? I think I, was, I should have been a Roman centurion. I wish I could live back there. No, you don't. Like that, that doesn't make sense, Blake. What are you doing? But we think this way. We, we relish in times past or we hope longingly to times future, right? We say, when we get there, it'll be better, right? When science advances, man, maybe they'll cure cancer. Life will be so much better, right? Let's plan and look there. Without, and all the while forsaking the time that God has us in now, the kairos, the appointed time that we're living right now. We, uh, so <laughs> we went to, and this is so evident everywhere you turn, especially when you start talking about people like in the sciences. So we went to uh, the SFA planetarium yesterday, right? There's this, they do this awesome thing throughout the summer where on Saturdays at three and five, you can go, you can blah, blah, blah. I take it and go into their planetarium, sit, and they'll do like this sort of like show for you, right? It's like you get to go in there and look at constellations. The kids loved it. They absolutely loved it. But you go in and they do this, they show you like, like Draco and they show you the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper and Ursa Minor, which is actually part of it. And like you just, they show you all these cool things, right? But then at the end of it, they show this like movie almost. They show this, this little video. And it's a video, really strange. It's about this alien ro- robot and this little wizard boy who are in a museum in London. I don't know how that makes sense, but that's, that's what it was. That's just uh, objectively the facts. But, so this whole thing was about, the, the, uh, they were in the Einstein Museum. They're trying to figure out the, the world is, is confused and they're trying to figure out the, the reality of gravity and time, right? That's the whole thing. It's like, experience the mystery of gravity. Okay, so they go in and they have this little wizard boy, very Harry Potter-esque except with a skateboard, and then a robot from outer space coming together to solve the mystery of gravity. And what they did was they just talked about Einstein's theory of relativity. How And, and it, it makes sense if you read it. It's really boring. Go ahead. I don't care. But the thing is, at the end of it, they said, this is the conclusion we come to. This is, this is the crux of everything. If you removed everything, right? If you removed the building that we're in, the chairs that we're sitting in, the cars, the pavement, the, the city, if you wipe everything away, you remove earth, you remove the sun, you remove all the stars, everything. You take everything away. The one thing that remains is space and time. They said those things will not go away. Those things are missing. And that's the thing. We are trying to make sense of this time, of this season, of this, this pilgrimage that we find ourselves on, on this rock. We are not ceasing to try to make sense of what is going on around us. This is, they are fulfilling what he's saying here, that God, they are proving that God has placed eternity in the hearts of a man. They are trying to seek and reach for something that is just beyond them. They are putting their brains together, the brightest minds in all of history. They're trying to put their brains together and figure out the mystery of everything. What they miss is when you strip all of that away, there's two more things that gotta go. Space and time, move them away. What happens then? What's left? God, God is who is left. God was before, he is now, he will forever be. 
This verse is not saying that everything you need to know about eternal life comes from within you. Exactly the opposite, actually. God has made us in relation to him, right? God is creator before time, before everything. He was, he is, and he forever will be. God is that, and he created us like we are. Finite, a vapor that vanishes in the dawn, right? We, we, are, we are made in relation to God. It is so evident when you look at the creation narrative, God is putting a chasm in between us and him, even in the garden. He's putting a chasm between us and him to the point that we know we can never cross this chasm on our own. We know that we can never be like God until we deceive our, ourselves and we take a fruit and we say, no, actually, I think I can be like God. Let me try and figure this out, right? Let me try and search for this thing that I don't know about. Let me take this and go and try and be like God. God has made us in relation to him and nothing we can do can alter this. He is our maker and we will always be the ones who were made. Always. He has created us with a deep, intrinsic understanding that there is something higher and greater than ourselves. Man has and always will know this. The tragedy is that we will never, in our own power, in our own understanding, know what or who that thing that is just out of reach is. In our own power, we're not going to do it. We're not going to figure it out. Einstein's theory of relativity falls way short of trying to describe how big God actually is. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant theory. And yet there's still someone far greater than it. In preparing for this, I began to even think about my youngest son, right? I got a five-month-old now, and he's, he's upstairs. He's just an absolute joy wrapped in about 14, 15 pounds, right? He's awesome. And, but like when you start thinking about young kids, especially the first few weeks of their life, they can't see very far in front of their face, right? You go up to them, and they can see maybe a foot or two feet or so in front of their face, but you get beyond that, and they kind of lose you, and they're kind of confused. It's really funny because like you'll start like trying to put things in front of them, and they'll just go cross-eyed and like do weird things with their eyes. It's really hilarious. And he, like mom will be in the other room, and then like he can hear the voice, of his mother, of, his, of the one who made him, right? He can hear the voice, but he can't really quite see her yet. And she comes around, and the closer she gets, when he, she finally comes into view, she sees. He, he sees, and he rejoices, and gets all happy, and just explodes with joy, right? We are very much like these newborns. We are very much, we are so stinking nearsighted that we are missing him who is way out there, who is, so, who is the answer to the eternity that is placed in our hearts. We're missing him because we're so darn nearsighted. We know that there is something just beyond us that is so much greater, but we simply cannot see it. We cannot know what God has done from the beginning. That's what verse 11 here says. I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but, but listen, the beasts of the ground, the animals, the trees, the fish, the sea, they don't have to worry about these things. God has placed eternity in man's heart. Do you think, do you think a, uh, a dog is going through its day wondering like, man, I, I wonder what the answer to the universe really is. No, you know what he's thinking? I need to eat, I want to mate, and I want to die. Like, the, the, that's the expanse of his life. Eat, mate, die. That's animals, right? So like, we have been given this great burden and gift from God. What are we to do with it? What are we going to do? God has chosen us to place eternity inside of our hearts. What is it? What is the answer? What is the task before us? That's point three. We're coming to our, our final point here, the task. What is this task before us? What will we do with all our nearsighted hopelessness? 
Do we work tirelessly to uncover the secrets of immortality in the universe? Do we search endlessly for things like life on other planets? Do we search endlessly for things like the Philosopher's Stone, which is like this fabled stone who like, that produces the elixir of, of life and if you drink from it, like, you'll never die. Do we, like Cortez, like, try and find the fountain of youth? And he thought it was in Florida, of all places. I promise you, man, it ain't there, right? Look elsewhere, it ain't in Florida. Do, is that the answer? Of course not. That's not what we do with the fact that eternity has been placed inside of our heart, the longing for things beyond us has been placed inside of our heart. That's not the answer. What is? Do we throw our hands up and be done with it all? Well, in a sense, yes, I think so. Look at the solution that the preacher comes to in verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful for the children of man, for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Eat, drink, and take pleasure in all that you do. This is God's gift. There's nothing better for you than to do good and to take pleasure in what God has, have, what God has for you, to be joyful and do good. That's the answer. Enjoy life. Take pleasure in all that God has given to you. By his providential grace, he has allowed you to put your hands to so much good in this life. Find joy there. Stop being miserable. Love the life that God has given to you. That's what he's calling us to. That's what the, the preacher is calling us to this morning. He hasn't just, he, he didn't just say find joy in your toil. That's not just it. Do good. He said, but do good as long as they live. This is the problem with, with hyper-religious teetotalers in Elmore City back in 1898 and then again in 1979. This is their problem. They didn't see the good. They didn't do good. They, they couldn't comprehend because their awe was on the filthiness of people and not on the glory of God. Their awe was misplaced. And so they couldn't see that, that we can both do good and enjoy a good dance, right? You can't be obedient to God and do this. They're wrong. You can in order to enjoy these things rightly, though, all these, these things that he is, in, in order to properly respond to all of them and to find enjoyment in your toil, you must, be, uh, uh, you must do good as long as you live, right? What does this imply? It means living in a manner worthy of the commandments of God, a manner worthy of the gospel. Only then will you find true joy in your toil. Jesus even affirms this, right? If you'll remember in our study in John, John 15, 7 through 11, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever, whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, right? You do good. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The fullness of joy is awaiting us when we obey the commands of Christ. While obeying the commands of Christ, we can experience the good that God has for us here on this earth. Obedience comes first, but once it does, all the joy that Christ is able to find in his, in his creation can be ours, and it can be made full. I love the way Doug Wilson says in his book on Ecclesiastes, he says the believing response to God places, placing eternity in the hearts of the man and us not, not being able to know his ways 
us being completely unable to do anything about the times that we find ourselves in, the seasons that come and go and we have no control over, the only appropriate answer is this. is to throw one's hands up in faith, not despair, and have a really good time. That's what he says. Throw your hands up in faith, knowing that God is bigger than you and God is good and he is in control and then have a good time here on this earth. That is what the preacher is trying to say. With God, you can have fullness of joy. (laughs) Doug Wilson goes on to say, this cannot happen unless one of the works God is doing is the impartation of true faith to another poor sap under the sun. That's all we are, apart from God's goodness, is just poor saps under the sun, living miserably, pilgrimaging through this life with no hope. But with God, there is joy and joy abundant. We can find joy in the woods and in the, on the beach and in the, the mountains and here in Nacogdoches. We can find joy in building a home or tearing one down. We can find joy in raising children and seeing them leave the home. We can find joy in, in, in being in really, really difficult conversations with our family about the gospel. We can have joy in those because of God, not because of yourself. This is what the preacher is trying to communicate. The God-given task that God has given to to man is to do good, to be joyful, and to eat, drink, and take pleasure in all that you put your hands to. That's what he wants to communicate to us this morning. If you are here and you do not know Jesus, I beg you to come and you trust in his completed work in the gospel. Work that will not be taken away. It will not be added to. That God will do it. What has been, he has always had this plan. He has always put into motion these things in time that make the the gospel a reality. Nothing will be taken away or added to that which Jesus has done. And if you don't want to do that today, I have another charge for you. If you don't want to trust in Jesus, if you don't want to respond to the gospel, I have another charge. Keep searching. Keep searching. The preacher's literally daring us to keep searching. So keep searching. Don't stop looking for what your heart longs for. You will find nothing but hopeless, nearsighted disappointment. You will see about two inches in front of your face, and there is an eternity of God's goodness and joy in front of you, and you won't be able to see it in your own power. Christian, take joy in the gifts that God has given you, all of them. Find joy in all of the things that God has put your hands to. Weep bitterly. Laugh deeply, plant generously, harvest gratefully, build and create excellently, love purely, hate appropriately, and in all that you do, do good as long as you live and do it all with joy, knowing that these are all gifts from God. This is the thing that God has given the children of man to be busy with, is to take pleasure in all that you do and do good as long as you live and acknowledge and have an awe for God, not for your own flesh. I'll conclude simply with the words of Spurgeon again. He said, time is short, eternity is long, and it is only reasonable reasonable that we should live this short life in light of eternity. Let that be the charge that we need to send us out in this world to find joy, to live in light of eternity, knowing that we have a God who is utterly good and worthy of fear and awe. Will you pray with me? And then we'll come up and sing after. Father, uh, Lord, we 
We are utterly in awe. This mystery of the gospel, this this wondrous mystery that we get to sing about, that we get to proclaim, that we get to shout and teach others about, it is a good mystery to us. And though we don't know the ins and outs, we don't know how war can be a good thing at times. We don't know how killing would be joyful. We don't know how God hating can be used in its proper context. We don't know all of that perfectly. God, all we know is that you have given us all things. You have made all things beautiful in their time. So we ask God that you would give us a deep awe and appreciation for you and your nature and what you have done here with your creation. May we glorify our Father in heaven. And may others look to us, look to Christians, look to your bride, the church of God. May they look to us and see our love for one another. May they see the good things that we're putting our hands to, the joy that we're finding in, 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 in finding joy in the eating, the drinking, and, and, and all the things that we put our hands to, all the toil in which we, we toil with under the sun. May they see all of it and glorify our Father who is in heaven. God, we love you and we know apart from you, none of this will take place. Apart from you, we cannot know the mysteries of the gospel. You've placed eternity inside of our hearts and that is a heavy burden to bear. But with you, we know that we have all the answers that we could ever need. We pray that you would make us a people who love, revere, and fear you for who you are in your awesomeness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the glories of our God. Mm-hmm.